every contribution I made to the community was meaningful. So I learned at a very, very young age, you know, when I got into hardcore and punk music, the contributions I made to the community were my cool points. They're the way I got respect. Hey everyone, welcome back to On Purpose, the number one health and wellness podcast in the world. Thanks to each and every single one of you who turn up every week to listen, to learn, and to grow. Now, I know that my promise to each and every one of you is making sure that I find guests who help us innovate, who help us think differently, who shape culture and redefine the way we live our lives. And today's guest is going to do just that. He's none other than Steve Aoki, the two-time Grammy-nominated producer, DJ, one of today's most successful American cross-genre artists, collectively counting 2.8 listen to this, billion music streams on Spotify. As the founder of the trend-setting record label, events lifestyle company, and apparel line, which he founded in 1996, Steve Aoki has helped launch the careers of global acts like the Chainsmokers, Block Party, the Bloody Beetroots, the Gossip, and the Kills, among many others. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Yeah. And I'm excited to talk about your new album and much more, Neon Future 4, available everywhere. But thank you for taking the time to do this, man. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's a pleasure to sit down with someone who I truly believe has just got this incredible mind where you're able to find juxtapositions and connections and things that most people wouldn't be able to find similarities and synergies, which, which is what I find so fascinating about you. So I'm really excited that we get to dive into that. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like, um, you know, when you... Whenever you um, you're fascinated about like a, a genre, a topic that that you like, someone might not know so much about, but the person in the middle is doing things like, wow, it's it's like magic. Well, it's like the same thing as when you are doing your own thing, you know, and and you know you know everything ar- around your your little corner, and uh, it's the same it's the same kind of thing, you know. It's like yeah. my my whole my whole life is is music. Um, as my platform, it's kind of like everything that I, that I like live and die for my passion, my, what, my, my, what I bleed for. And so, um, you, you, uh, try a couple of things, one of them hits, you know, then you start finding that success in that pattern. And then, and then, uh, you know, things, things start happening. Yeah, absolutely, man. Now I know we were just checking in a bit earlier and you were saying you're, in your Vegas playhouse. It sounds like the best place to be quarantined in the world. Yeah. Tell us about the inspiration behind it and how you've been moving through this time. Yeah, um, so I, uh, I bought my house in 2013. I moved out here from LA. I was living in LA for a good amount of time, over maybe 13, 14 years. And um, it was very difficult for me to leave Los Angeles because that is where my career really broke. That's where uh, I you know, I started to DJ, um, all my connections and music started to grow. Um, and you know, it it just like, I had so many heartstrings being pulled when I was leaving, but, um, I was barely even there. I was there like towards the end of it. I was there maybe 60 days, 50 days of the year because I was touring so much. So, um, and then I signed a residency in Las Vegas here. And, uh, so I was like, well, it just makes sense to move to Vegas. 
It's a 45 minute plane ride back to LA where my whole team is. Dimock is still based out of LA. My management is still based out of LA. I still have a lot of my friends there. And, um, and I was like looking for a place in Las Vegas and I realized, you know, not just is it a great place for me to get away from everything. Cause that's what sort of what started happening when I, when I was in LA, I, I, in the beginning, I was like in the thick of it. Like I was at every single party. I was doing every little thing I could just to get my, you know, brand out there and do what I was supposed to do. And then towards the end, I was like, once I built enough of a stable career, I didn't want to be in the thick of it anymore. I just wanted to dip in and dip out whenever I needed to do to, to be. So now Vegas is kind of like my, when I was living in the Hollywood Hills at the end of it. I was, this is like my Las Vegas Hills, you know, cause I still go to LA and work, you know, not yeah, so much yeah. anymore, but um, yeah. So when I moved out here, um, the residency was great. Cause I was doing, you know, 40 shows a year here. I, you know, I still am, but not anymore, but, um, and it's a suburban community here. It's strange. It's like these people think of Vegas, they think of the strip, you know, think yeah. of craziness Sin city. It's like, it's just, yeah. just pop in 24 hours, you know, but really it's a sprawling desert and there's track homes everywhere. There's just small little community outfits all over the place. And this was a perfect place for me to, to, um, have my mom, you know, and I was crossing my fingers to see if my mom would move in my neighborhood. Cause I never get to see my mom, you know, yeah. I'm always traveling and she lives in Newport beach and I can't always get down there. But she said, okay, <laughs> you know, she dropped living in Newport beach for 40 years and moved to Vegas. And, uh, and I, I, I one of the best investments I ever made was buying her house. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then I bought her a nice house. She lives like, 15 doors away. Actually, I can see her. Oh, from that's amazing. You know, and then I see, you know, I, I don't see her as much anymore because we quarantine the hell out of her, make sure she is like bulletproof, you know, yeah. um, uh, or, or micro proof, whatever, yeah. whatever we can do. But, um, any case, uh, so when I got the house here, um, I didn't realize how big these homes could get. <laughs> that's the other thing. It's like Los Angeles, there's a limit. You know, do you have like a 4,000 square foot home? That's pretty big in LA. And that's, yeah. like, that's like a multi-million dollar home, it's depending on where you live. So you could only get so much for the money that you spend. But here, for a couple million dollars, I was able to buy this home, which was 16,000 square feet. Way, way more square footage than I can even imagine to, to deal with, you know? But <laughs> it, was, it, it was a scoop. Like, I was like, I have to take this regardless of that it's so big um, and grow into it or something uh, because of, of, you know, the opportunity that, that was in front of me. So um, now I, I spent like two years building it out um, and developing it, like turning it into what, what is now called Aoki's Playhouse. And it really is a playhouse. It's like got a foam pit and a trampoline and a gym room. I put a DJ booth in there. So I do my DJ sets. I have my live stream set up there. Um, I do all my workouts there. I work out pretty much every day. Um, I got a barrel sauna. I got a cold plunge, uh, situation inspired by Wim Hof and Laird Hamilton. Yeah. Um, and, and then I have like, I have a really great kitchen. I got, um, this room right here, which, which doubles as like my design studio, fashion design studio where I like, you know, I do all my clothes, uh, design and, and all my meetings with my team, which is now just me, you know, zooming. Um, and, and I, my, I stream out of here. I got my studio downstairs. 
it's just like, uh, like now my day is so full and I just go from one room to the next room to the next room. And, uh, and it's just become, you know, the best quarantine house. I just, I don't even feel like I'm in quarantine. <laughs> so so I, just because I have this luxury, right. I'm trying to, at the very least one entertain, you know, anyone that's watching my streams or live and two, just inspire, inspire people to like, you know, do your workouts. Um, here's the wads. And later on, I'm going to do something that, um, I haven't really announced yet, but I could talk here about it. It's, um, I have a foundation called the Aoki foundation and we focus on the brain. Our whole mission is about the human brain, mm-hmm. uh, learning about the brain, mainly learning about it in every aspect. One to find cures for degenerative diseases, um, that's, that's like a, a, the main goal, right? Obviously just to find cures for Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, um, even to the point of depression, like understand what that's all about, anxiety, all those things. Um, and, and work with organizations that do that. And then, and then two is, you know, unlock the mysteries and the doors of the brain that, that we can, if we, if we got into, we could do things that would be science fiction, you know, mm-hmm. we could start inching our way towards, turning some science fiction concepts into science fact, which is really, that's my passion point, right? You know, like do things like, you know, live through our technology, you know, you know, at the extreme, live yeah. forever through our technology, things like that. So, um, and work with, 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 uh, researchers and, and orgs that do that. So with, with the Aoki foundation, our whole mission at this point, which is about the brain is mental health. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be planning out, um, doing this kind of challenge and almost like a noob noob instruction to certain things that 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 people can do while they're stuck at home mm-hmm. you know like breath work um even a cold plunge because everyone's got a, you know if you don't have a bathtub then i don't know then you know, yeah, cold shower. yeah cold your, trash, your trash can too <laughs> yeah, that yeah. works or or yeah obviously cold shower um you know meditation yoga um, I already did the exercise, so and nutrition, obviously, and then bring on experts and talk about these things to the fans, to you know, especially to the younger demo, because mm-hmm. I feel like as you get older, you you pick these things up, at, you know, as our mortality starts in- increasing. But uh, when you're young, when I was young, I thought I was invisible, you know, <laughs> invincible, not invincible, invincible. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like, it's kind of like feeding feeding the right stuff then you're just going to, you know, you're going to have, uh, you're going to have, you know, it's just better for you. I, I think that's good. That's really good to hear. And, and, and I'm, I like how much synergy there is in the Aoki Foundation and the work that I'm trying to do because uh, my book that comes out in September, it's called Think Like a Monk. And, and what I've done is I've found, so I lived as a monk for three years in India. And so I've got every lesson that I learned as a monk, but I found all the modern science that backs up those statements. So I'm, I don't know if you've ever seen any scans on monks' brains. It's phenomenal. Like the neuroscience behind a monk's brain that's meditated for four to five decades is just phenomenal wow. to, the point that, to the point that you can, there are, there are studies done where monks have been put under physical pain where the parts of their brain that show physical pain light up but there's no emotional pain associated with the physical pain. So for most of us, we experience wow. pain in two forms. We experience the pain of burn or, or hurt, and then we associate pain with that physical pain. So it 
hurts us mentally and emotionally. But for these monks that they scanned their brains, they found that they only felt the physical pain, but zero emotional pain, which is, which is like insane to comprehend. And I talk about it in the book. So I'm excited to share that. Yeah, I'm wow. excited to share that with you when it, when it drops. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I love that, like what you just said, that combining um, the science, you know, uh, behind the practice, you know, because mm-hmm. like obviously like without the science, it already looks really great because you're just so relaxed. But <laughs> I want to know what's happening up here. I want to know Me what's too. happening in the body. You Me know? too. Because like once you know that kind of information, that raw data, I mean, then like you could do so much more. Like, totally. how do you do, how, you know, you can like ask the questions that can actually dive deeper into our, uh, into our psyche, deeper into, into finding that, that place that we're trying to find. So it's, uh, it's the, the data is incredible. I mean, that, that you're combining both of that. Yeah, I, I find that the parallel or the juxtaposition between timeless wisdom and modern science is so fun because there's, there's a great uh, thought from Martin Luther King where he said, if you want a new idea, read an old book. And, and I love that kind of like finding that synergy between like this was said 5,000 years ago, but it's being proven through data and insight today. And therefore, right. it's relevant to you and me. And it's repeatable and scalable. And we can share it across the whole world. Right. And like I love what you said about turning science fiction into science fact. I think that's that's brilliant because I think you're so right that so many of us when we're watching science fiction even if it has a message or it has powerful storylines or plots or characters, we all go, ah, but that's fake, right? That's not real. And, and I think you're so right that if we can try and push people along the way to show them that it's actual fact, it's actually possible, that makes yeah. people feel it's possible in their own lives. It, it's that, that's like science fiction is our imagination on steroids, right? Science <laughs> fiction is like, it's like what, like what can we – what would be the wildest dream scenarios? And let's put that into, you know, illustration or comics or uh, a TV show or, you know, animation, whatever it might be. Uh, and you just take that, that imagination that, that we all have, that we're all excited about. We all, I, as a species, we were here 2020 alive out of all the other bipedal species because of our imagination, large part, you know, because we we dream for more, you know, we imagine things. And some of those things can actually happen by doing the right steps. So it's like, you know, just, just like the, like certain ideas, like uh, telekinesis, you know, moving things with your mind. Yeah. You, you say that to someone and they're like, well, that's obviously impossible. You can't just be like, and then like, you know, my, my keyboard lifts up, (laughs) but you can actually telekinesis exists now, Mm -hmm. but in a different context, in a, in a way where, um, you know, people that, that, that have paralysis that are paralyzed have technology in their brain uh, connecting to a computer and it's able to the, what their thoughts were able to move, you know, uh, the machine that they're sitting on forward or to the left mm-hmm. or bring like a, um, a robot, robotic arm with food to their face. Yeah. That's, that's moving with your mind. That's you're moving with your mind. You're not saying anything. You're not moving with your hands. That's telekinesis. That's, that's our version of telekinesis. Yeah. So, you know, Absolutely. it's just like those kinds of things that like we use technology to actually make some of these 
imaginations into reality. And uh, when, whenever that happens, whenever those two things happen, those, they collide. I want to be there. I want to see it, you know, or I want to participate <laughs> somehow, you know, wanna, yeah, yeah. you want to be a fly on the wall. You want to be, but you want to be involved. You want to, yeah, yeah. yeah. Be, I mean, like in some cases I want to be the, the test dummy, you know, I want yeah. to like, yeah. you know, not, not all cases, but in some cases I'm like, let me try this out. <laughs> I love that, man. Tell me, tell me about the imagination because imagine going back into that mindset when you were saying like, you know, LA is where you really broke through, but those early days of your career where it's almost like all you have is your imagination of where things can go to, to, to where you are now. And I don't know if you superseded your expectations or met them, but you know, I think as, as someone who's like trying to make it, trying to break through and a lot of people listening and watching, they have that. And today, you know, you're buying your mom a home and she's close by to you and you have this incredible world that you've created. What was it that was getting you through that time? What was the mindset that you believe served you so well in that journey to where you are now? What was it that you were doing differently that allowed you to break through the noise and the clutter? Because you're so much more than a DJ, you know, and, and, and I think that's why what you do is so attractive and so iconic to so many people Tell me about what that was like on the come up, which people don't see anymore. We just see Steve Aoki, the icon. You don't really see that journey. So um, when I moved to LA from Santa Barbara, um, I made that, I made a, I had a fork in the road at that point because I graduated from college and I was, and I was in love with academia. Um, and I really wanted to pursue that as well. So I was a women's studies sociology major. And with those majors, you can either go into like social work or something like that, or you go, you go right back in academia and do more research. So, um, and like a lot of my colleagues in, in the class, they were going right back to academia. They're going, they're going for their PhDs, their masters. So it just seemed like, well, I guess that maybe this is the route I'm supposed to take when I was in college Just you know, so deep down this track now. And um, I'm like respected in, 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 my, in my small circle that it allowed me to, it, you know, like, let's go for it. So I did all the application process. And uh, I, I think I applied to like 15 different schools or something. And, and I got rejected to literally almost every <laughs> single one of them. I, was, I realized I'm like, I think I'm hot, shit, man. You know, <laughs> like in front of my 15 other you know, especially women's studies, it's like, it's all, it's all women except for me and this other guy. I'm like, you know, like they all love me. Like I'm going to make it, you know, like through whatever field I'm going to do outside of this. And uh, I, you know, it just, it was like, nope, 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 nope. Rejection, rejection, rejection. Uh, I did get accepted to two, but they're almost like pity. Like it was like a pity. It felt like a pity call. Mm. And, uh, and then at the same time, I, was on my 36th release on Dimoc. Mm. So, so I was already pumping out music and I was doing well in college in Santa Barbara. Yeah. I had a distribution deal, so I didn't have to pay for anything. That was the best thing that could possibly happen to me at that time because I didn't have any money. So the only way I can make money is if I can deliver good music to the distributor and they produce everything. They produce the vinyl, they produce the CDs, they distribute it for you and they give you a check. And then that check allows me to use that money to give to artists so they can record their music 
future artists. Mm-hmm. So I was like, sweet. I have a great situation. Cause I signed some other bands that, that actually worked out for this distributor. And, uh, and I was just pumping out music. And then I found this band that, um, was a friend of mine that played in my living room. Cause I used to put on shows in my living room at the time. <laughs> I mean, this is like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to zigzag a little bit, but I love it. Zigzag uh, as much as you like, man. It's great. <laughs> so during this time, this, which is quite interesting, uh, in, in college, I had a small apartment. Our living room was like maybe 200, 300 square feet. So I I'm, could be a little bit off here, but it was very small. But we had maybe 20 shows a month in that living room. So we would have, we would have like maybe, f- uh, you know, 80 bands, because it'd be like four bands a show every single month, like clamoring in there with like 20 people, like, moshing and you know whatever give five dollars uh five dollars at the door to the band and um and i'd be bicycling and doing deliveries you know getting paid minimum wage uh, tell the fraternities delivering food so that's what i i was a uh, i was a telemarketer i was on the phone like cold calling you know poor people that to to like you know try to do something for UNICEF or something. I don't know what, what I was, I forgot what it was, but I was doing telemarketing, getting paid that way. And I was a bike messenger, a bike delivery guy. And then I would put on shows. So the reason why I would talk about this is that there, like a lot of that ideology, that, that ethos that I had when I was in college, when I was in high school, putting on the shows, because at the time I was putting on shows, I was in bands, um, Whenever we put on shows, we didn't make a, a dime. I wrote for a zine, this is punk scene for seven years. I had a column, I'd write a column about whatever I wanted to write about. And then I wrote, and then I reviewed everything under the sun. So whatever I go in there, there'd be a box of demos and zines and cassettes. If you can remember that, like vinyl, <laughs> I would I would say, give me everything. I want to review it all. So I'd review sometimes between 50 to hundred reviews for the zine. And I do this all for free. They're like you never get paid. No one got paid there because it's like punk scene. But it was the Bible for for our hardcore community. So I, I wrote for that zine for five five to seven years. Wow. Um, and and when the bands I was in, we weren't getting paid. The whole point of this is is that I grew up in this culture, uh, in the music world. I grew up in this culture where you're not supposed to profit from what you do. You you're supposed to like give everything and not actually get anything financially in return. It is not a business. Mm. Like the world I was in, it was not a business and you can't even actually make it a business. There's like, there's like, it's just, it's, it's like pure passionate people playing to pure passionate people. And it's a very, very like small, it's a small little community. And, um, it's it's small in that you can't scale it out so much because the music was so like niche, but it was, it was small enough for me. And this is where also where I learned something really valuable that every contribution I made to the community was meaningful. Mm. So I learned at a very, very young age, you know, when I got into hardcore and punk music that the contributions I made to the community were my cool points. They're the way I got respect. It wasn't like, um, you know, like wearing the fresh Nikes, going to school and getting that respect or, or like having a girl, like, you know, talk to you in front of your friends, getting that respect. It, it's literally you, you make a zine, you do, you spend the time, you do the interviews, you go to 
the Kinko's copy center, glue it, glue it together, and then make a zine, Xerox everything out, or start a band, or like, you know, whatever it is to contribute to this little world. It's like a religion almost. And we're like, you know, Jehovah's Witness going out there, like letting people know about our world, but not to other people, just to our inside circle. Yeah. Right. So I learned that and there's no, there's no financial return. Right. And as a kid, you, you don't care about financial return because all you care about is quarters playing your in, in Street Fighter. That's all I care about. <laughs> I just needed enough quarters that after every, every, every day after a school, I would go to, to, to Mo's Pizzeria, get my slice of pizza and then and pump in like three games of Street Fighter. And I was happy, you know, because that's all my mom would ever give me. It's like, here's here's money for a slice of pizza and some quarters for your video games. Yeah. And um so I learned that at a, at a young age and I followed that through with all my friends into college or this, the community that was, was global, but small niche. And, and I would tour and it just became my life and I never expected to make money. So after I left college and I, and I hit that fork in the road, we're talking about academia or music and I decided to go down the music route and do my label. I was like, I have something set up. I don't need to expend too much money and I can, and I could build this band that I just found called the kills um, that, that were my friends. And like, they're, they blew my mind. They were so different from all the punk and emo and the other stuff I was putting out that, that, that I love. But this is like, this is a rock and roll band. That's like, you know, kind of velvet underground. You got this whole thing to it that can like, I'm, I want to blow them up. Yeah. So I had this passion and I just literally like hung up the guitar and the microphone. I'm like, I'm going to focus entirely on Dimock, my record label, this band, move to LA and make it happen. So I moved to LA, but I still had the same ideology, right? So really I had zero business acumen. I had no business history. I was, um, and this is where the double-edged sword begins. Like I have zero business skills whatsoever. I don't know what the hell I'm doing about making money or how to, you know, I didn't understand what ROI meant. I didn't understand how to, to, to save money. I just like, was like, I'm going to give a hundred percent and I'm not, I don't really care about the return. Right. Um, so that was, that really affected me later on a few years later, I was, I was in like major debt. Um, but, but the, the other, the other, other edge of the sword is that I'm, I know what I'm doing is what I need to do. Cause this, I, I will live and die by this, by what I'm doing you know, regardless of the money, the money was like, so not in, important to me. I, I didn't, I didn't, I, it is definitely not the right business to make money in, you yeah. know, especially for a young kid that has no idea what he's doing with that world. And that's why at that time too, another parallel, my father, who is a successful restaurateur, yes. uh, and he, he founded Benihana's and he was very wealthy and he's very, uh, you know, showy with his wealth. He actually never gave me a dime. Wow. Uh, never gave me a dime. Never gave, well, I wouldn't say just me. He never gave any of his kids a dime. That's like how he was raised because he was raised. He, he wasn't, he wasn't necessarily, he was a working class man when he was, his family's working class when they were in Japan. My mom was, was broke when she, when she was in Japan. So my mom was very thrifty already because she grew up that way. My dad was just like one what you're doing is a, is a distraction to what you need to do is get a real job. 
you know, um, like work a nine to five. Life is, is supposed to be boring. You're supposed to deal with it because that's life. <laughs> you can't just have fun all the time and think you're going to get by and you're going you're gonna to be broke. And, and guess what? No one's going to help you, Steve. No one's going to help you. You need to learn your lesson. I'm not going to be throwing you a lifeline. You better figure this out. You better get a job. And like, and I'm, I'm an adult now. You can't tell me what I can't do. Yeah. So, Where are I've you been, finding that courage from? Where are you finding that confidence from to kind oh, of from you I, I've been reared through my whole, like, this is exactly why I went back to like my, my, my high school and college days. I've been reared. I am like, like a, I'm steel. Like I, no one could take me away from this. I don't care if I'm broke. I really don't care. I don't care if I was living in a small apartment. I'm mean, like when I moved to LA, me and my girlfriend moved there together at the time, my ex-girlfriend. And, uh, it was $900 apartment. We spent four fifty each. And, um, you know, my cost of living was so low. It was like top ramen and, you know, just like whatever we could do to get by my, my yeah. phone bill, my car insurance. So like my total cost was like 800 bucks, you know? So I was like, okay, I can handle that. My mom did help me out a little bit with that part because I, I just I had no money. So, yeah. um, you know, and my dad would not help me because that's just that's just how he is. And I and I applaud him and I thank him. Uh, he's passed away, but I thank him so much for that because I learned myself. And, yeah. you know, he was very much that tough love kind of father. And I'm so, so, so grateful for that. That's one thing I'm going to take with me when I have kids, too, is um, they need to learn on their own. Yeah. They need to figure that out on their own. So any, in any case, when I started Dimock and I started, you know, hustling, um, no matter what the, 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 the records I put out would sell, I was also expending just the same amount. So the business side was, was to shit, you know, mm -hmm. and I was learning far beyond the hard way because I was losing so much, you know, I was like my credit cards were, were, were uh, maxed out. I was getting on more credit cards and, and there's no way out. Like at one point after a few years, and this is after I signed like some huge bands like Block Party. Like I, I when, after I found Block Party, I'm like, okay, I'm going to make it. <laughs> it's not like I'm going to be rich because I didn't really care about being rich. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to be a self-sustainable label. That's what <laughs> I wanted to be. A self-sustainable business that can run and have employees because I didn't have any employees. Yeah, I just had a bunch of interns. I got my first employee in 2003 when we found Block Party, you know, and uh, and I was like, I need to pay her, and I got to pay, yeah, I got to deal with this, and like my poor girlfriend is like, like 13 interns in the house, you know, in the apartment when she comes home <laughs> from work. So, um, so anyways, uh, you know, fast forward, I'm signing some really big big acts, and still, I am not, I I am like, now at this point, 10 cards. Uh, maxed out hundred thousand dollars in debt. And, and then I started throwing these dim Mac parties because what I did was like, Oh, I'm going to replicate. And this, this is like the, 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 this is like what the saving grace situation. So I'm going to replicate the same thing I did in my living rooms and in my, in high school at these, at these house parties, but I'm going to do that in LA at these bars. And I, I can't, I'm not going to be in a band because that LA culture, um, nightlife culture, if you want to do it all the time, it's, it's like these little bars, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I learned how to DJ. My friend friend uh, got me my first gig just playing some vinyl records. And uh, and then I started DJing at these 
these small little little bars and we would make them these dim mac parties and then we would bring block party in we would bring the kills in. we would bring in other bands too that i was friends with the yeah yeah to you know mars volta to you know at the drive-in plate in my my apartment so like mars volta was that the, their new band they would come in to the shins to the killers i mean before they blew up and then we would have them dj for literally 100 bucks and I was the opening DJ because I was a nobody, right? So I was getting a bar tab at first, just while people were trickling. No at, at the beginning, I was, I was, I would set up because I didn't have a, I didn't have a setup. I didn't have turntables, and I was DJing vinyl. I had vinyl records because that's what I did when I collected records uh, as a as a punk and hardcore uh, kid. What you do, part of the culture, is your uh, you collect records. So I had a bunch of records, and I was playing those records. And I was like, I gotta buy hip hop records, I gotta buy indie records, uh, I gotta buy electronic records. And so I started buying records, and I was playing them. You know, learning how to beat match before the doors open. And as people would trickle in, they would hear me train wreck and just be like the worst DJ on the planet. But I was promoting the party, so they couldn't kick me out, right? And I'm only doing it for bar taps, so they just have to deal with me for the first thirty minutes. Our first hour. And, and, um, and I did that over and over and over and over again. And I finally got better at DJing. I went from playing, you know, like opening to like one slot up, getting, you know, 50 to 75 bucks, uh, including my bar tab, very important at the time. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then we started building a network of bands coming through. Every time a band would come through, MIA to whoever, we would have their party. Um, and, then, and then I was already doing my label. So I was already connected to so many other artists and managers and, and other record labels that we started growing a little culture in LA, this Dimmat culture, this culture that where we were, we were helping foster and be a developing platform for, for up and coming artists. And then soon it went to hip hop, soon it went to Kid Cudi. And Kid Cudi was coming through, Kanye West was coming through, Lady Gaga did her first shows in LA, to Skrillex, uh, to LMFAO, Will I Am was always there. Um, uh, just like, so like when Black Eyed Peas was hit, making those hits 10 years ago, they were at our party every single time we threw a party. And, and soon I was making, you know, from 50 to 200 to 500. And, and, and then I was, but I was DJing like four times a week. So you got to think I eventually did pay off all my debt, but it wasn't from, <laughs> it was from like some offshoot that I did not think was going to happen. And that was DJing and becoming, you know, I wouldn't say the DJ, DJ Steve Aoki saved the day. It was really the Steve Aoki that's trying to, to, to help build this small culture mm -hmm. outward, but realize that, you know, this culture has, it has no boundaries. Yeah, and what what were the values of that culture that you were trying to build? Like, what was in your mindset? What was like the the underpinning foundations of that culture that was so powerful to you? Like, what were those values? Um, the the under I guess the underpinning uh, ideology of the culture is that for me, as someone that's involved that wants to be involved, is it's the same feeling of signing a brand new act that you want to share to the world. Mm. so it's like when you really break that down when you boil that down yeah. it's, it's the, the the excitement just like when you're a kid and you share something to a friend yeah it's like yo eddie i just found this toy yeah, and or a movie. So happy. you gotta like you gotta like yeah. like 
fuck with this toy. And then, <laughs> and then Eddie picks are like, Oh my God. I'm like, I can't stop playing with the toy. It's that, that ability to share that excitement to share with people that, that is the, that that's where I feel like my strong suit is. Yeah. Like beyond be behind, like all this stuff, it's all I care about is sharing things I love. Yeah. Okay. And then now I'm finding ways to monetize that. But if you put money in front of that, then like that ability to share doesn't have that same feeling, right? So you have true. to share first, right? You have to share first. And if they if they love it, then like it's then it's it's just part of the how it works. They should pay for it, you know. Or they should taste. They should taste it and pay for it. You know, like you like a piece of the pie. Here's a sample, but you could buy the whole pie if you like. Yeah, pie, you know. So but this pie is the motherfucking best pie you'll ever eat in your goddamn life. Kind of pie, yeah. you know. Yeah, and that's it. If you believe it, and, and I think that's half the challenge is when you're trying to sell stuff you don't believe, or you're just trying to sell for the sake of selling. It doesn't have that effect or impact because people can feel that, right? When when you genuinely are obsessed with something or excited about, it, like you said, the kids example is is perfect because whether it's a new video game or a new movie or the latest thing that happened, that infectious feeling that we all get as children. Yeah. You want to tell our best friends about that. But you have this, you have this really interesting perspective of aiming high, but managing your expectations. And, and I wonder how you were doing that at that time and how people could do that because obviously you've exceeded and superseded many expectations, like you said. And, and I love what you said about your father because it's so beautiful that you've turned that into gratitude and that you're seeing it from a grateful angle because, you know, it's, it's so easy for so many people to be bitter towards their parents for not supporting their dreams or not giving them money or not believing in them. But, but I think that you're teaching us a really valuable lesson here because actually you're so right that because of that lack of support, and, and it's interesting for me to think about that because when, when I came back from the monastery, and, and any other people that came back too, we were all in the same position. I, we had zero. And I came back to parents who didn't have a lot, who couldn't give me a lot. And a lot of my friends came back to parents who had lots of money. And it's really interesting to see the trajectories of, of the two types of people that often that can be so crippling when you have too many resources. So I love that perspective of gratitude. But tell us about how you've always been able to aim high but manage expectations. And what does that mean now? And how has that evolved for you? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm actually trying to think about the, the first, you know, striking time of aiming high um, and, and uh, managing your expectations. I mean, I, I think, um, let, me, let me tell you a story first before. Yeah, I, no, it's, no, no. It's, 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 it's like second nature to me. So for me to like understand like why or how I do it is um, it, I need to tell a story first. So I remember, you know, like. You know, like I guess that when you when you sign certain before I was a DJ, when you, when I signed certain acts that that blew up, I wasn't necessarily aiming high. I was just working with other underground talent, right? Um, so that wouldn't be a good example. But one would be I remember I only managed one artist in my whole career. I've only actually managed one artist. It was in two thousand four, and there was this young singer, and uh, she had this video that just blew my mind and she got already on the cover of, of fader magazine. So, and fader magazine is like the ultra cool, like, yeah. okay, you got to check out this artist. And uh, my friend worked for fader. He was the, the editor there, editor in chief there. And he's, he interviewed Dimock as one of the rising labels at the time. So he's like, you got to check out this artist. 
you know, she needs help in America. She's like just blown up in England. And I listened to her music and I saw her video and I was just like, holy shit, she's, she's a superstar. She's a superstar. She, she's going to change the world. Like, I just was like, I've kind of fell to my knees like this, you know, first of all, I need to sign her if possible. Cause I already got block party. So I'm like, I, I have like some cachet. So, and then I, I, I reached out to her and I was like, can I, can I sign you? Um, it's like, no, we're already signed to Excel for the world. We can't do that. And Excel's, you know, they signed Adele. They have like, they're one of the giant indie labels. What, great, great, amazing indie label. Um, so obviously I'm small. I'm just like, I, I just believe in you so much. I might not have the infrastructure, but I have my passion for to, to like help you grow, to be who you want to be is like insane. I will topple everyone on that energy level. And she's like, well, I love your energy, um, but you can't sign me, but you know, we can do something else. I'm like, okay, can I manage you then? I've never managed a single artist in my life. I just like, I need to work with this woman, you know? And, uh, and then she's like, I love that energy and I haven't felt that energy. So yes, you can manage me. Erica. And I was just flipping in my head. Like, I'm like, Oh my God, I'm a fucking manager now. This is amazing. Did you play it cool in person or were you as excited in person as well? Uh, yeah, I was playing it cool, but like I was, <laughs> I was definitely, but I was showing it for sure, you know, but not to the, to the level that I should, uh, that would like throw her, you know, tell her to yeah. have her walk away. But um, <laughs> anyway, so I started, started like working with her and, uh, and it only lasted for three months because <laughs> I mean, I knew it was to a certain extent what I'm supposed to do. But I did aim high. I did aim high there, yeah. and and you know I tried my my best to the skill set and level that I knew, and I and I did like I have to say a little bit of it came from me in the very very beginning. She did it all herself. She's a incredibly intelligent. She's she's just like an amazing, absolutely amazing, inspirational woman, and uh, she goes by the name of Mia. No, wow. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> no, I just was obsessed with her. But, yeah, she, yeah. you know, but like I, I say, that was like one of the first times where I really aimed high. But the my, I felt confident that I could do it because like I would do absolutely anything to yeah. make it happen, you know. So I think that, that that's where it is. That's That's the soul of what we're talking about is that if you really, really, truly believe that you're the best person that you could apply something that other people can't apply. Mm. And it doesn't necessarily mean like you're the most well-rounded, you have the best infrastructure, you have the most money. It's more about like you have the heart mm-hmm. to really take it to the next level. Aim for that, you know, also mm. obviously aim for that. And then, and then realize when, when, when um, as someone on the other receiving end, if I see, a kid coming at me with that same kind of heart. I mean, I'm going to feel him. I'm going to feel her. I'm going to be like, okay, I want this person on the team, but not necessarily as a top. Yes, 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 yes. But I'll find a way to include them in. And that's where the managing expectations comes in. You, you fight for the top and then you, you, you understand what your level of expertise is in the, in that space. So (laughs) that's when you're like, okay, understandably, I'll start at level one, but I'm at least in. And then you grow up. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, man. Thanks for telling that story. That Literally, that story crystallizes the point so well. 
Uh, and it's, it's brilliant. And anyone who's listening, you can tell that Steve's a phenomenal storyteller and his memoir, Blue, The Color of Noise, which he released recently released, highly recommended because it's it's the same. These, these stories that you can dive into with much more depth and you get to extrapolate them. So for anyone who's listening and going, wow, I need to know more about this incredible person's life, then make sure you check out Blue, The Color of Noise. It was recently released. It was Steve's memoir. Steve, I want to talk a bit about Neon Future 4 because, you know, it's it's out right now. I believe it's streaming and, and people can listen to it and get it. It's got 27 tracks on it. Now, now what stood out to me is that I know that Sapiens is one of your favorite books. Yeah. Uh, Yuval not only is a good friend, but he also came on the podcast and, and I, I find him fascinating too. Tell me about how the song Homo Deus came about because I wouldn't really think of Yuval and music, <laughs> you know, it's, not, it's, it's brilliant. That's why I love it. It's so cool. So tell us about how that comes about and, and, and where that originates from. Yeah, yeah. So it's also, um, you wouldn't think about Yuval and, and Neon Future so much because his version of the future is not neon. No. It's utopian. So no. um, that's where like, I've definitely allowed for various kinds of voices about what the future looks like that are very, that are different to mine. Mm-hmm. Because up until this time, um, an exception to like JJ Abrams, who, who like was more vague about, you know, neon future. It was, uh, it was very much like along the same lines, like the Ray Kurzweil was very much along the same lines as neon future. Neon future is kind of based on Ray Kurzweil's singularity approach. Um, and Brian Johnson, uh, definitely, uh, he, he's, um, uh, head of Colonel, um, and he's he's like a he's got the incredible brain technology. So he's he's talking about the same kind of thing that that, that I've been saying uh, as well. But uh, Yuval is you know reading a second book, which is also extremely incredible. Um, you know, it's interesting that like you know technology for us for the the, the for Homo sapiens will will um, we, we will take we will take, take it for granted or take, take advantage of it in a way that's not, not good for us. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, anyways, uh, I, for every album on neon future, I'm approaching scientists, authors, and people that have some, some like level of, or some, uh, some story that they've, they're talking about with the future. And, um, and I needed to get Yuval on this after I read so- *Sapiens*. I had to get Yuval on this after I actually, actually after I read *Homo Deus*. Yeah. But uh, you know, um, it was a bit difficult. It, he wasn't like coming with ease, you know. Um, <laughs> I, it was. It wasn't like pulling teeth so much, but it, it was definitely like I don't know if this is going to happen. Yeah. You know, like I'm still crossing my fingers, kind of thing. Like until it happened, I'm like, did did it really come in? <laughs> so, <laughs> His, uh, you know, his voice bite didn't really come in. I, I was, um, I mean, and when it came in, it was like, it was as if like Drake vocals came in. <laughs> you know, it, was like, it was as if like Post Malone's vocals put up in my inbox. Like I'm like, <laughs> I have Yuval Harari on the album. So, um, yeah, that was that was heavy for me. That was that was really big because, like, to me, yeah, it's just you know. I, I go just like you're talking about, I go for the heavyweights as mm-hmm. high as possible, you know, mm-hmm. and Yuval is my, my favorite author. Yeah. So I go for as high as I can go and then, and then kind of like step sideways and then 
step down, sideways down. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and I, I feel like, um, the thing too, is I'm confident about me. I'm confident about my, my about my music mm-hmm. and, and more importantly, music connects the world. That's one thing you can't take away. That's one thing that has nothing to do with opinion. It just, yeah. music's the world's language. It's, the yeah, world's it's, language. it's an emotional language. Yeah. It, that's the thing. That's the thing about music is it's an emotional language and depending on the song, it could change your life. Mm. You know? So, um, and artists have changed my life, you know, like I know songs that have taken people from the gutter and made them feel alive. Yeah change their entire life, you know? And, um, I think we can all appreciate that. So it's like, uh, you know, if, if like, you know, I'm not sure if he's a Stevie Oki listener, but, <laughs> but, but he, I, think he, I think he agrees on the, the music portion, yeah. of it, you know? Oh, for sure. For sure. The fact that he came through means that he believes in you and, and your work and that, he believes that you know music's gonna music has the ability to transform the world, and and it's it's so thrown around. But you're so right about it being an emotional language. And t- tell us about that, like what? Because it's so interesting, especially we're talking about it right now. I think sound, and and this I talk a lot about this during our time as as living as monks. Like sound and sound design was so important to how we lived our lives. So we always woke up in the morning to nature sounds, whether it was a stream or whether it was the birds or whether it was, you know, it was always something natural. And then our meditations were full of gongs and cymbals, like, and they were tuned perfectly to uh, a resonance that was helped to get you into a deeper state of meditation, right? Each of the mantras that were chanted were chanted at a specific vibration to have a physical, emotional, and mental and, and deeper effect. And so I, I'm totally sold on sound design, especially when I lived in New York City and all I heard was drilling and digging and and all of that. And you're like, wow, this sound design or this sound distraction is really messing up my brain. Whereas sound design, so, and, and right now I think because people are stuck in their homes, sound is so important. What is the sounds of neon future? What is your goal and what kind of feeling or what emotion are you trying to bring about in people through the music, through each of the tracks? I want a dynamic experience with the album. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to bring all the different colors to the table, different personalities. And that's what music is. It's just like all these emotional personalities. So um, that's why when you, if you listen to the album from front to back, mm-hmm. it's, it goes through all these different tempos, these different um, arrangements, uh, moods, and it changes up. Like some songs are extremely like uh, blind happiness, you know, like I love my friends and, and some songs are just dark and and visceral and, and like, uh, you know, should be in a, a you know, a, a thriller or, or a sci-fi film or something, you know, yeah. I really want to take people on that kind of journey because it's 27 songs. So if you're going to really sit there and you're going to go, into this album then yes i needed like give you a lot of texture you know and uh you know like my previous albums i consider them chapters you know they're like between 10 and 14 songs this is 27 and it's also just different genres i mean it's just so different right so like on just on that note alone just on like outside the feeling perspectives that we're talking about it's you know having 
you know, Spanish on there, having a K-pop um, group on there, Maluma yeah, on there, you know, to, you know, Zoe de Chanel, to, you know, just like all these different kinds of artists. It just like throws curve curveballs at you, mm. which is what I prefer. Instead of like you hear four or five songs into it and you're like, wow, they all sound the same, you know, in the end, because they all have, they're all the same tempo, the same um, arrangement, the same, like, you know, punch, punchline, the same, whatever it is. Then you start kind of forgetting. So I kind of want to mix it up. It's like almost like a DJ set, like, you know, like back in the day when I used to DJ before I was producing so much, I would play Dolly Parton into Daft Punk into, you know, Elvis Costello into block party, but f- actually mix them, find ways to mix them into like the Ramones, you know, like yeah. you want to mix things up in a way that makes people go, Oh yeah. yeah. Have fun and go back into their childhood, go back to, or like a song they heard yesterday to like, you know um, you know, and that's like, it's like what I've learned about being a DJ is the attention span of crowds and yeah. how, to get their attention if, if I'm losing, if, if I'm losing them, you know, yeah. um, this album is like a very similar approach, but they're all brand new songs. So I have to find new ways to keep them engaged um, because it is a book. It's like, a, it's a it's heavyweight, you know, 27 songs is heavyweight. And then most people, majority of people won't be listening to it straight, but I made it. So I made these songs, the grout of the songs, the, the songs that glue Neon Future together, not just as a as an album, but as a whole series, are yeah. all my science-based songs. All the all the songs with Yuval, Brian Johnson, Ray Kurzweil, JJ Abrams, Kip Thorne, Aubrey de Grey, and so forth. Yeah. Do you do you ever experience a creative block ever? And and if you no. do, or how do you process that? What do you do to get out of those, or do you go into them? Like, what is your process? Because I, I love asking that to highly creative people who are who are able to, like I said, connect all these ideas. But but what does a creative block look like for you, and how do you process it? Creative blocks, um, they're camouflaged. They're hard to discern, and and they're they're tricky beasts. Mm. They're tricky because like uh, um, I'll work on a record for a long time, and I'll think I'm getting there, and then like at the at like the twelfth hour, I'm like oh, I have to restart the whole thing. This is like literally it just keeps like the carrot still at the end of the stick going keep going keep going keep going and then i'm just like why is this not sound right what the like you know yeah and then like you go back into it again and you don't want to give up on all that work you spent 12 hours on an idea and it's so fleshed out and you literally might have to restart the whole thing again you know how painful that is yeah that is not (laughs) <laughs> That's like the, the thing with like music and this kind of art creation. It's like, depending if you're experimental, you can kind of flow with it, I guess. But if you have a certain goal in mind, that's very specific, you know, especially with collaborations, mm-hmm. I have to, I have to tend to the other artists that are involved. I can't just experiment, you know? And also like my soul won't let me just be like, Oh, I'm okay with it. It's fine. <laughs> I, I just like my, 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 my gut is like, you better start again. You, uh, you have the work ethic. You better start again. Yeah. So, I mean, like that happens a lot more than you think it happens a lot. 
And you have to, that's, I think the, one of the um, understated qualities of a great producer is dealing with that and managing that, managing that you have to restart and be okay with that and not give up and not like, you know, it's frustrating. It's, it's a frustrating situation that you have to deal with regardless of the situation. I have songs on Neon Future 4 that the, the, the one beat, one music, the, like the whole melody, I, I, you know, I changed the drums, but like the drum arrangement, the, the melodies, everything I wrote in 2013. Wow. released until 2020. That's crazy. And that was done. It was done in 2013. Actually, I'll tell you right now, I haven't told anybody this, that beat was for uh, Kendrick Lamar. Oh, uh, no way. Yeah, because uh, we did a tour together uh, for three weeks. And so I, we were working in his studio on the bus and um, he's like, he's like just on it, you know, and, and I, I made it, I'm like, yo, I got the specific beat just for you. And I played it for him, but I don't think he wanted it. He was like, oh yeah, it's cool. And then, you know, you know, we went on, on our ways, but <laughs> I, I made it for him. And then I sat on it and I kept on trying to revisit it through the, the years. And then, and then finally I got, you know, a great vocal on it and now it's put out. So mm-hmm. there's that, there's like, there's two songs like that where, on in the reverse side of things, I had a vocal top line because I have so many vocals mm. um, in my computer um, from so many different sessions I've had. And this one, I just can't toss. So it's been mm. sitting there for seven years. I finally was able to turn into a song. That's amazing. Yeah, I find, I, what I find fascinating about that is your ability to build something for someone in not going as predicted. And then you're able to still let that live for seven years and then have its own moment that it obviously deserves. Like what's going through your mind at that time? Like, how are you, how are you focusing on failure or rejection and and then going, Oh, actually this still has a place and it can evolve into something useful and great and beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Failure, uh, rejection, working with artists. Um, that takes time. That's just, that's just like, I mean, how do you deal with that? You, you, you just deal with it the best you can. I mean, like the first times you, 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 it hits you, it hits you hard, just like anything. And then like, you just get kind of, you, you get okay to it later on, obviously that's just with anything. But like, there's times when I have had songs with huge artists that literally were about to come out and boom, nope, it's not coming out. So I've had to get to that point where, you know, like I am dying for this record to come on. I'm like, please just like when the clock hits 12, it's out. I'm like, <laughs> okay, no one's stopped it. Cause anything could happen. Like, especially yeah. with big artists that you work with management, maybe the artists themselves, they're, they're like temperamental. They're like, no, I don't like it. I don't want to do this. You know, yeah. I mean, even Kanye's done, he's like changed music after he's dropped the records, you know, he's like the, re- the album's out and he's like, taking them down and retooling them and putting them back up again. Yeah. So it's like, you know, there's a lot of different possibilities that can start or like stop something from happening. And um, you can have an incredible relationship with an artist and you have that bond and make music, which I've had tons of songs and then all of them get locked up. All of them, all of them. That's a lot to do with. And then the artist goes like this and you're like, we had like, we have hits. We have hits, you know, and it's yeah. like that hurts no matter, no matter if I've been doing this for, you know, 
now or if I, if I just started producing, it's like, it just hurts really bad, you know, mm-hmm. because these are testaments of your life that you can yeah. get out, get out to the world that like leave, like my, like why I do this is I want people to like vibe on it. I want people to feel it like the way I feel it. And I, and like, especially the combination between me and this, this particular artist, like that's going to blow people's minds away and it just, Nope, sorry. Ain't going to happen. <laughs> And I still have songs that are like, I'm, I'm like doing this right now. I'm, yeah. I, that I've done finished, finished songs with artists that are just m- massive. I can't talk about. And I'm yeah. just like, please have it come out because it's just been radio silence, you know? Yeah, no, no, no. I get that. And that's, yeah, that, yeah, I, I feel you on that. Just hearing, I can hear how much is in your voice and the way you're sharing it like that. Yeah, and I love the I love the honesty and the, the genuineness of you just saying it still hurts. Like it's not because it's your it's your heart. Like your heart's in it, so it hurts. It's yeah. it's not like you're putting out stuff that you don't care about. It's there, there's meaning attached to each of it, and there's a part of your life in each of those songs. And when it doesn't come out, that feels like a part of your life that's been missed or lost and and left. So, so to somewhat answer the question, because I just talked, I just complained a lot, but like... It was great. It was a great answer, but go on. <laughs> but I, I, I say the only way you could deal with that is by doing more. Yeah. You know, the only way you could do deal with it is just by <laughs> just being, you know, it, it's like, you just got to be active. You just got to keep going. You can't just mm-hmm. sulk. That's like, that's life though. That's like, that's just a lesson of life. It's like, don't sulk. Yeah. Just move forward, move forward, do things. Just, I, I don't even know if that's the right answer. Cause like, you know, talking to someone like you, you might be like, you just need to meditate and let, let, let the emotions not affect you. <laughs> <laughs> They're just feelings and thoughts that aren't real. You know, with me, like the way I am, is kind of the opposite. I'm like, everything, let's go. <laughs> I'm just like running. And like, I'm, and then my therapist is like, you can't just run. And like go through life like that. You need to sit and like face it, confront it, and know that it doesn't affect you. And I'm just like, I just want to do another song right now. <laughs> I'm gonna do another song. I'm gonna call this artist. I'm gonna be like, you know, it's like, uh, it's like if someone, you know, if you go through a breakup, you're like, oh, I gotta call the girls that like that liked me once, you know, or whatever. <laughs> like, you know, can I get that, that? I need to get like my ego back up again or something. <laughs> Uh, I love that, man. No, it's great. And, and I think it's a bit of both. You know, it's there's sometimes you got to sit with an emotion and you got to deal with it. There's sometimes you got to push through like it's different, right? It's never there's never one size fits all for every challenge. There's different. Yeah, yeah. In the failure. So I think you're spot on. I, I, I agree with you. It's you know, it's what works for you and what, what helps you shift. There are times when there are times when sitting with something that's been I think when something's recurring, when there's an emotion that's recurring and there's a feeling that keeps coming back, that's like a repeated lesson that we're not learning and so that's something you want to sit with but when it's just random things going on you just got to dive through sometimes i when we when we talked about your foundation earlier i was fascinated by what piece of research or insight that you've learned about the mind or the brain that has changed the way you live in a particular part of your life like is there one insight or one one study or research that when you heard that you're like oh that's gonna change how i live because you know you've lived a crazy you've traveled a lot like you said you've done like 300 shows in a year or you know crazy amounts of shows in a year you're always on the move what has been that one piece of research that has changed a lifestyle habit or changed the practice in your life that that you are really happy that you found out and discovered about the brain I think one of the first things I learned that that was uh, profound to me was just the your, the brain plasticity. 
Mm. You know, just that general understanding that you're not necessarily fixed to what you think you're fixed to. Mm. You know, you can change things around and be agile and and change bad habits and create good habits. That that, that basic understanding is I think has been really important to my life. You know, mm. and um, and it allows me to like always uh, think about things like why am I always doing the same thing? Why do <laughs> yeah. I always do that? I'm going to change it. I'm not going to do that. I'm yeah. not going to eat like uh, the same breakfast every single morning because I, I'm just so used to it. I'm not going to sit in the same seat when, on the couch. You know, like you always sit in the same area of the couch. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. At the dining table. Like, in, the, in, the like in, in bed, in bed. Like, you know, like I, might, I, I told my girlfriend, like, hey, I'm going to sleep on your side one night. <laughs> what did she say? She's like, no, <laughs> no, but I'm just like, it's just like, you, you always do the same things. So it's like, I think it's good to like, kind of be yeah. like, no, we're going to do something completely different just to fuck with our brain. Yeah. And, yeah. and like the idea, I like the, 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 the idea or the visual of you have like your brain's got these neurotransmitters, like just flying mm. across everywhere. And when you do something over and over again, it just becomes this freeway. Yes. It this like canal Yes, dug in from the wind of you know, just all of a sudden it's just like firing, and you in order to change that, it requires one little canal to be built up on the other side. You got to create that freeway, and then soon this like becomes a drought. Yeah, fills in the sand, fills in, and it's no longer a freeway anymore. I love that, you know, that like visual like yeah yellow blue lines like and you're like a bad habit that's a bad habit and it's stuck in there real good you gotta like start creating this little but it's gonna it's gonna take time to start shoveling through that area and it's gonna take a lot of manpower to get through that you know 100 percent. yeah i i always describe it as like when you first have a thought and it's a baby thought it, it starts off as like a wooden bridge and then that wooden bridge turns into a stone bridge. And that stone bridge, as you cross it more and more, it turns into a steel bridge. And now you've got this steel bridge of conditioning and the pattern that you can't break anymore until, like you said, you've got to start building that little narrow, that, that, that walkway, that little, you know, it's going to start, <laughs> you're going to start taking that one and building that one. And so we've got these steel bridges like implanted into our mind that are doing the default version of our unconscious life. And, and you're so right that sometimes we try and bulldoze it. Like we try and get like a destruction company to come and wreck it. It's kind of like Inception, you know, that scene where they've got that train that flies through the city and it's like, it doesn't work like that. It just starts with a little, like yeah. you're a perfect way of just like a little walkway just to keep strengthening that. No, I love that. Man. That's a, that's a great, great one for everyone to think about because we, we want this big change to happen, but, but that big change starts with just, finding that small connection in our mind. So I love that, man. And, and tell us about, so we were speaking about earlier that, you know, we, we have a mutual friend and obviously one of your partners, Tom Bilyeu, uh, who's awesome uh, behind the interviews of Impact Theory and, and Quest Bars as a co-founder originally, but also both of you built Neon Future together. Tell me about how music and comics came together and why you saw that as such a fascinating form of storytelling. Well, Neon Future definitely is a story that needed to be told. It's it started as a um, a music narrative in the beginning because that's just how I yeah. how I'm creative. So um, and uh, I'm obsessed with this idea of you know our humanity converging with technology in a way where we just 
do all these amazing ideas that we're talking about science fiction and science fact. Um, and, uh, and I was talking about this with Tom on his, on, uh, impact or not, not impact theory, impact theory, right? impact theory. and, um, and uh, we we sat down actually we just before that was for Quest Inside Quest. Oh yeah, Inside Quest. That was what it was yeah. called before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so we we talked on that show, and we were talking about <laughs> all kinds of stuff like that, like living through our technology, you know, uploading our consciousness, stuff like that, like you know, sci-fi stuff <laughs> that potentially who knows could happen. And then um, uh, I I told them that I'm getting cryonically frozen. So, you know, just that's my insurance policy that if uh, if we don't reach that, reach it to that place in our in our in my timeline and I die, then, you know, I'll I'll just come. I'll come back <laughs> and when, when that time happens. So, I mean, I'm already dead. So you have well, the way I see it is like you're dead anyway. So I'll still have like a, a gravesite or, you know, whatever people can see with like my hair or something. You know, yeah. <laughs> like I mean, no one's gonna see the body anyways, whether you're cremated or you're you're buried. So yeah. I'm already dead in life, but I'm frozen. So that's yeah. how I see it. You know, that's amazing, um, man. I love that. That that's true. Like, he he was he was like shocked by that, but in a in a in a good way. And then we just sat down. And we're like, yo, we got to build out this neon future idea. Mm. We got to do something together. And I'm like, this is exactly what I'm looking for: a partner that feels the same way that can help put this, put this on paper and build out a storyline that, um, that we, we both agree on that, that, that it's like, we're flipping the whole, you know, the t- traditional sci-fi storyline, um, on his head because yeah. usually the robots are the bad guy, the bad guys, mm-hmm. you know, the technology is, is killing you yeah. technology, and then like, you know, one human saves the day. Yeah. But whereas the augmented, the humans that have, you know, technology in them because essentially we will become more like that. Yeah. I mean, we are, we are like a pretty much, you know, half, half Android, you know, by the yeah. way we use our technology or phone and stuff soon it'll be in our bodies Yeah, and we'll be okay with that. And, uh, and, um, and that, that's what I, the, the, the place that I want to start is that those are the good guys. And, and we're trying to, you know, you know, do good for the world kind of thing. And then yeah. the story, and then the story evolves from there. But, yeah, um, good, man. yeah, it's an incredible storyline. Um, we've produced six comics. Um, we, we just dropped a trade paperback edition, 240 pages, which is awesome. And then, um, and then we were just on the phone. We we're just on zoom just recently. Cause we're, we're, um, we're, we're getting, getting through the next five issues. So mm-hmm. six issues. So um, excited for the, the next series of Neon Future to come out. Yeah, me too, man. I'm, I'm always glad I get my delivery. They look great. They're, they're, they're <laughs> awesome. and congrats on all the awesome work. This has been great, Steve. I want, we, we end every On Purpose episode with two segments. One's called Fill in the Blanks and the Final Five. These are our fast fire, quick fire rounds. So they're one word answers, maximum three words, one sentence. No one ever follows the rules, but... Let's see, let's see how it goes. So this is called fill in the blank. So I'm going to read a sentence and you just got to fill in the blank at the end of the sentence. So it goes, the human experience is based on. This is not harder than it looks, by the it way. Is. It is very it's much harder than it looks. When I get okay. it, it's like, okay, the human experience is based on. 
the human experience is based on just one word? Or, or like finishing off the sentence, you can fill in the blank. I might, I might just play dumb here. I'm just going to, the human experience is based on... Uh, Take as much time as you like. The human experience, human experience. This is like, it's like writing a caption. Literally, literally. You know, you know how hard it is to write a stupid caption? Man. <laughs> I'm like, I'll delete. Uh, no, That's I'll exactly delete. what it the is. The human experience is based on um, our connection with each other through our shared experiences. Yeah, beautiful. That makes sense. All right, second one. My music will never... My music will never not inspire you. Beautiful. Building a community starts with? Good grit and scotch tape. <laughs> I love it. Uh, connection to me means? Absolutely everything that I do. I wish everyone knew. Oh, I love how seriously you're taking this. I really appreciate it. I want you to know that. You, yeah. you by far, have given us no soft answers. It's great. I, I respect it, and I want to point it out. I, there. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a fast, fast uh, one-liner guy. You it's know? good. It's what, good. What's, 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 the, what's the statement again? I wish everyone knew. Um, I, I wish everyone knew I, that this hair is re- not real. It's a wig. You're joking. Now, now you're playing with us. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Now now you're playing with us. Now you're playing with us. Uh, Okay, good. These are your final five. So these ones are questions. One sentence to, uh, sorry, one word to one sentence answers. What have you been chasing in your life that you no longer pursue? So what had you previously chased in your life that you no longer pursue? Uh, The need to be, actually, I love playing shows. I always pursue that. (laughs) <laughs> I was going to say the need to be around lots of people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I like thrive off my live shows. Yeah. I love it. And I, yeah. You can tell, man. Um, when you watch the footage. Yeah. It's a good thing. Uh, um, okay. I'm going to say this. This is more personal, not emotional, but um, what have I been chasing in my life that I no longer pursue? Uh, the, the need to um, like crazy sports activities. Right. I just like, cause as a kid, I would always like try to do, you know, the, I mean, I still do the backflips, but I, you know, uh, in the snow, snowboarding or yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, not like I need, I don't need to jump the f- highest or farthest off a cliff. I can do 10, 12 meters. I'm happy. I don't need to go 15 or 18 meters, you know, mm. uh, it's I cool, man. still go pretty high though. I still, yeah. I still do. I still do 12, 15 meters though. But it doesn't have to be the highest. I get it. It doesn't have to be the highest. Yeah, yeah. Because like I'm going, I got to protect my brain and protect my spine. (laughs) Absolutely, man. Good answer. Okay, next one. Uh, Ooh, if you could only leave one song of yours behind to be remembered by, which would it be? One song um, to be remembered by, Pursuit of Happiness. Okay. My remix. It's not even even my song. It's a remix I made, but it's such a classic song. Yeah. Nice. I like it. Okay, third question. Uh, what is what, this? I really like this question. What is one thing you believe a hundred percent when it comes to making music that other people may disagree on? So, what belief do you have about making music that you're so convinced about? 
But then if you share it or, or making art, but then other people are like, eh, I'm not sure with you. Um, could be one of two things. One, one is um, that my, my need to collaborate with the world. Right. Because there's a lot of, a lot of purists that, that just obviously frown upon that. Yes. And I get a lot of, a lot of flack on that. Yes. Whenever I work outside my genre, people are like, why are you doing that? Oh my God, it's horrible. If you go through my comments on Instagram, if I work with like a different artist, people just, there's a lot of people going, oh my God, what are you doing? Go back to this, you know? So interesting. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave it with that one actually. Yeah, no, that's a good one. I like that one a lot. Cause I get that sometimes for interviewing people that I find fascinating, but people would be surprised to see me next to and I've always like me <laughs> people would be like why the hell are you interview this guy you should be interviewed a neuroscientist or something no, and, and we have plenty of you but it's like for me I'm fascinated like I've always said that you know for me I want to sit down opposite like I'm only using this as an example but it's like I want to sit down opposite like Cardi B and yeah. talk about mindfulness and your sense of the mind like to me I I get excited by the fact that me and you are connecting on stuff that I don't think people from the outside would know. Yeah. And to me, that's where I get my kind of bumps. I get, okay, last two questions. Uh, if you could create a law that everyone in the world had to follow, what would it be? Oh, wow. Wow. I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll try to answer this quickly, but this is definitely a good one to like sit yeah. under on because that's, yeah, if we there's should. a law that like everyone must do, there's like a lot of things that everyone should, must do. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And I'm probably, I'll probably be like, ah, I should have said the other one, but <laughs> let me, let me come up with something quick. Um, you know, it's the kind of thing about, you know, the first thing I think about is like, what, what, what do I want in the world? Yeah. Like, you know, you don't want, um, you want world peace. Those are like the, the, the most general topics, like, yeah. you know, um, saving the world, saving, saving ourselves, saving animals, so many things like you know the gruesome torture of animals i hate that oh my mm -hmm. god mm -hmm. um uh um so what would be the law kindness to all or yeah yeah i'll say that like kindness to all yeah kind to everyone okay or else, you, or else or else you're gonna be put in jail for a long time <laughs> <laughs> love the threat as well yeah awesome last question steve what was your biggest lesson learned from the last 12 months of your life what's the biggest lesson you've think, taken well okay so coronavirus is probably what we're living in right now so um i'd say the lesson i've learned during this time is you know something that 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 we can all you know that we should all uh that we're probably all feeling right now mm -hmm. and, and that's like that's just being connected to our families yeah you know? especially people that are really busy in their lives now they mm -hmm. can do that so yeah i know i just see it i just <clears throat> hear from my friends i see it from my friends how they're like zooming with their family members that they have never they don't talk to at all yeah it's true so I need, um, I'm still reaching out to my family members, but like, I'm so glad that I'm close with my family and I'm so happy. I don't have to have any regret that I didn't, you know, and I just, um, that, that's like very, very important, very important, more, more important than anything. Awesome, man. 
That's incredible. Steve Aoki, everyone, make sure you go and listen to the album Neon Future 4. And as I mentioned before, his memoir, Blue, The Color of Noise. Steve, thank you so much for doing this, man. Thank you for being so generous with your time, so vulnerable and open with your answers. And this was a lot of fun, man. I, I love this. I really enjoyed it. Oh, and and I, hope we can, I hope we can connect in person when uh, this is all over. But thanks again, man. I'm to share this with you. All right. Awesome. Thank you, man. Thanks, Steve.